And now please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 14 and verse 26. You can find this on page 1323 in the Pew Bible. So we continue our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're coming to the end of this part of the book, uh, chapters 11 through 14, in which Paul is addressing some uh, problems with regard to their approach to worship. It appears that these folks had prioritized this gift of tongues above all the other gifts and were exercising the gift of tongues in such a way that was divisive and chaotic in the worship. And so in this last part of uh, chapter 14, Paul again reiterates uh, how they are to approach worship in such a way that a true uh, spiritual life is being manifested among them. So we'll read from verse 26 down to the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it only you that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to us as we study it together this morning. Philip and I went to the... Pastor's Appreciation Breakfast for Lighthouse Christian Academy on Friday. And it was great to see a number of you students there. We appreciated that. Uh, By my count, uh, there are about 12 of you who go to school there. Now, some of you clearly were hiding from us, uh, and we didn't see you. And I'm trying to see if I can make eye contact with some of you still trying to hide from me. But uh, we'll find you and talk to you. And I think we have a number of faculty members and administrators there as well. And it was a wonderful opportunity to see the children and uh, to have them perform some songs for us. And uh, the opening acts, as it were, were the pre-K and then the kindergarten group. And so these groups came out in a line in front of us and uh, the music started and they began to move their arms and to sing their song. And they had hand motions that went along with the song. And the reason it all worked is because squatting down in front of them was their teacher. 
singing in a very exaggerated way and doing all the arm motions, so they followed right along. Take away the teacher, and that scene becomes one of total chaos. But that held together, and so we had this wonderful picture of vitality, of energy, of enthusiasm coupled with just enough organization to make it work and to make it be a blessing. Now recognize here, Paul is writing this letter to a church that has energy. It has enthusiasm. But it's enthusiasm without any organization or structure, and that is causing problems. Their worship is chaotic. And part of the reason this is the case is because they they don't care for one another as much as they should. They're not loving each other as much as they should. And so Paul is calling them to approach worship in an orderly manner. He's not telling them to stop being energetic and lively. He's telling them to be organized and to channel that energy in a way that will please God and will build up the other people in the church. And this is a message that you and I still need to hear today. That God is the one who gives us life. He is also the one who gives us structure and order. And we need both things in our worship in order to please Him and for us to benefit. And so as we look at the passage, I hope you'll see Jesus is the one who enables you to worship God with true spiritual vitality, which is what we want and what we need in our worship. And so if you children want to draw a picture, you might draw a picture of these children we saw at the school who were uh, singing together. And uh, just be listening as we talk about how does that work. That works because they all sang the same song. And they all sang it at the same time. And uh, that produced a beautiful thing for us to see. Well, if you'd like to follow along, there's an outline in the bulletin. You'll see there the first thing we want to notice is that God desires your participation and your edification in worship. So again, throughout this section of the book, Paul's encouraging them to use their unique gifts to build each other up in the context of the church. He's told them that the overall priority is to be the sacrificial love that he describes in chapter 13. And now he's applying this to how they worship. So he says in verse 26, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. So Paul's talking about when they come together. He's talking about public worship. When you come together in public worship, it appears that they are all bringing something to share to the worship. Now, understand, this is not an exhaustive list of what they did in their worship. I've seen some commentators say, well, now we know what what the first century worship service was like. No, we don't. Because other passages tell us there were prayers. Other passages tell us there was the reading of Scripture. Other passages tell us there was the preaching of sermons or the the Word of God. Others tell us that there was the taking of vows. Others tell us that there was the celebration of communion and, and the Lord's Supper, the sacraments, which we know from the book of Corinthians. So this is not meant to be an exhaustive list of their worship, but part of their worship in which the people felt free uh, to be expressive and were bringing something to share. And so it seems like some people wanted to share a particular psalm 
that had touched their heart perhaps in the previous week. Others had learned something in their study they wanted to share. Others wanted to express their thanks to God through this gift of tongues, speaking in an unknown language. Uh, Others had received some revelation of truth through the Holy Spirit. Others had the gift, apparently, of being able to interpret these tongues. And Paul is not here criticizing them for their desire to participate in the worship. Right? He doesn't say in this passage, stop bringing things to worship. That would have been a simple solution if that was the problem. Stop it. Don't come to worship bringing something. Just come there and receive. And I think that's actually fairly instructive. Because the goal isn't that we come to worship bringing nothing. Right? What does Paul say? The goal is at the second part of verse 26. He says, let all things be done for edification. That's that word we looked at last week. It means to build up or to strengthen the church. So Paul's desire is that they come prepared. They come ready to participate, but they participate in a way that blesses the other people and that builds up the people in the church. Now, undoubtedly, the church in the first century was... Um, maybe less formal than it is here. They, they would have been meeting in people's homes. And it appears here that they would be led to, pers- to participate as the Holy Spirit led them. But Paul is not here in any way saying that their participation is wrong or their desire to be engaged in this is wrong. And we've talked about this before. Now that we live in the time of the church after the New Testament has been written, we have access to the Word of God. We're not reliant on some of these gifts in the same way that they were in the first century. Still, we should be coming to church prepared to participate. That would be a great goal for us to have. And there are probably things we could do better to be prepared better, right? We could probably work a little harder to make sure we got a good night's sleep. Uh, the night before, so that we're as rested as we could be when we come to church. We could probably look over the bulletin. Where if you're not on our church's email list and you want to get on us on it, let us know. Every Saturday evening, Philip is very faithful to send out the bulletin so that you could actually look over what are the psalms that we're going to be singing in the worship service. Um, we could actually have an idea: is this psalm uh, a lament? Uh, is this psalm a psalm of praise? And then maybe we would come expecting to sing uh, the praises like praises and the laments like laments. Uh, we've commiserated with, the, uh, with, with the, the song leaders, the presenters, over the years because it, it seems like there's always this little battle going on and uh, sometimes the presenter wants you to sing more quickly and uh, the congregation is notorious for slowing down. Uh, as the psalm goes through, and this is if, you, if you're stuck at home and you watch this online, it's it's graphic online uh, how slow the congregation is. See this, but if again, as a part of our preparation, if we understand, we are singing our praise and, and we're committed. We're going to stay up with this presenter. We're going to sing at the tempo uh, that that he or she is leading us. Right, and, and we would think about what the scripture perhaps is that we're going to talk about and, and maybe have a little preparation on that. And children, you can do this as well. Coming to church prepared to participate. Right? And then when you're here, your attitude is, I'm participating. Uh, I am not a spectator sitting in the audience 
watching a performance. Obviously very disappointing if that's what you're doing. That's not what worship is, though. And a lot of times we can have that attitude. Okay, it's your job up there to entertain me or to teach me or to do whatever. I'm sitting here passive. And that's not what we should be doing. We should be coming prepared to engage and to be participating. Understand, there were things the Corinthians were doing right. And them coming with enthusiasm and a desire to participate was right. And and Paul is in no way criticizing that. Paul is trying to channel their energy in a more helpful way. And so understand, God wants you to participate. God wants you to be built up in the worship. Secondly, we see in this passage that edification requires some measure of self-control and order in the services. And we see this in verses 27 to 32. So in Corinth, right, their exuberance was actually hindering their edification because it seems that their worship had become almost chaotic. So in verses 27 and 28, he talks about how they need to think about this gifts, this gift of speaking in tongues. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret, right? So if we're going to do this, it should just be a couple people, and we should go one at a time. Let the one finish before the next one begins. And he goes on to say there should be an interpreter. In fact, in verse 28, he says, if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Uh, this is consistent with what we said last week. We, we don't fully understand this gift, perhaps, but it seems like perhaps this is some kind of prayer. It's an expression to God that's coming from the Spirit in some kind of language that's not understood. And we, we saw in the passage last week, it could be edifying if there was someone there to tell everyone what was being said. In the same way that a public prayer could be edifying if we all know what's being said. We can sort of join in with the prayer. If we don't know, if I'm up here praying in a foreign language that none of us know, that's not really edifying. And this is what Paul's saying. If there is no interpreter, just don't do it. Now, some people after last week were saying, well, pastor, you never told us, is this a gift that's still ongoing in the church today? And and my answer to that is probably not in the way it's practiced in many charismatic churches. It seems, though, what our denomination says is this kind of gift is neither necessary nor normal. I would never stand here and say what the Holy Spirit can or cannot do. And it may be that there's a place for this gift in private devotion or in some way like that, um, that, the, the, this, that the Lord may use. But now that we have the scripture, we're not dependent on a gift like that or on this gift of prophecy. Now, Gordon Fee, in speaking about this commentator, and I put this out in your outline, says, Paul lifts Christian-inspired speech out of the category of ecstasy as such, and offers it as a radically different thing from the mania of the pagan cults. There is no seizure here. There's no loss of control. The speaker is neither frenzied nor a babbler. And and that's an interesting point, right? Because he says, keep quiet if these certain conditions aren't there. That proves that whatever this is, it's under the control of the speaker. And so anytime a person is saying, well, this is just happening out of my control, I can't stop it, 
that's not the way the Holy Spirit works, and that's not the way this was working either. Uh, it's true. It's clear here that that's in fact what Paul is advocating. Let's use some self-control. And he applies this to the gift of prophecy as well. In verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let others judge. Um, It seems like after the prophet would speak, again, led by the Holy Spirit, now speaking in a language they could all understand, others were testing the the prophecy. I I put in your outline 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And I think probably what was going on here is after uh, these people led by the Spirit to speak from the Lord, uh, after they spoke, then others, probably the church leadership, would then evaluate what was said and try to apply it and uh, to, uh, to, in essence, approve it as being uh, biblically relevant. And uh, again, Paul is urging order and self-control. In verse 30, if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. So this implies uh, the one man is speaking and the person sitting next to him indicates, uh, I have a word from the Lord. Uh, so the first person sits down and lets the second person stand up. And again, they're speaking one after the other, not all at the same time. What's the purpose? Again, in verse 31, that you may all learn and that all may be encouraged. So that's the goal. So Paul is not attacking them for engaging in these gifts, but for using them in a chaotic way. He's telling them we need self-control, we need deference to others, we need concern and love so that the body would be built up. And so, children, this is why I was uh, having our little experiment with you up on the stage. You understand, it does not work well when everyone talks at once. We cannot learn. And so, understand, really, Paul here is talking to the church almost as if they're children. He's telling them, you love the enthusiasm, guys. It's really great. But we, we need to do this in an orderly way so that we can actually learn that the Spirit can lead us, and that we can be blessed. And children, this is important for you. This is why we need to sit still. We need to pay attention. We need to not be talking. We need to not be asking to go to the restroom all the time or something like that. Uh, You can go see Mr. Moore for treats after the service, right? Not during the service. We don't want you walking over asking for your Starburst during the service. That We're trying to promote... um, Everybody being able to learn, both you and the people around you. And this is one of the ways we love each other. This is why we have an order of service. This is why we move through elements in the worship service in a way that makes sense. Because edification requires a measure of self-control and order in the services. Now thirdly, we see in this text that order does not only include what we do, but who does it. And we see this in verses 34 and 35, where he says, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And then he goes on, and if they, if they want to ask, uh, if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. These verses, as you can imagine, are fairly controversial. 
Uh, there are some people who don't like what these verses are saying, and so they ignore them or they chalk them down to Paul being a misogynist. He just hates women. But there are also people who like these verses too much and, in my opinion, have perverted them to say more than they say. And so we need to have a proper balance and understand what is Paul saying when he says, literally, let the women keep silent in the assembly, for they are not permitted to speak. I think taken in context, Paul here is prohibiting a certain kind of speech, but not all speech. I put in your outline a quotation from Simon Kistemacher basically making the same point with some argumentation. Paul's command to keep silent cannot be a total ban on speaking in the meetings. This injunction would contradict his earlier statement in chapter 11, verse 5, where he spoke of women praying and prophesying at worship. Moreover, we presume that with the men, the women were also singing psalms and hymns in the church, chapter 14, verse 26. So you remember, back in chapter 11, verse 5, Paul was careful to give instructions for what women should wear on their heads when they prayed and prophesied. It makes no sense for Paul to be telling us what to wear on our heads when we pray and prophesy if we are not allowed to pray and prophesy. It assumes that that is, in fact, what was happening. In, in, in chapter 14, verse 26, he says, you are all coming, bringing these things, right? He didn't say all the men are coming, bringing these things. He said, you are all coming, bringing these things. And the implication is that women were speaking as well. So what's going on here? Well, I think his appeal to submission helps us understand. It says they are not permitted to speak, they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And we might say, well, where in the law does it say that the women are to be submissive? Um, one of the places that Paul refers to back in chapter 11 is Genesis chapter 2. And I didn't put the whole creation account there, uh, but where it says, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And God makes Eve as a compliment to Adam, to help Adam, to support Adam in the work that he was given to do. Paul says this more clearly in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 and following. And these verses are in your outline as well. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Right? So wives are to submit to their own husbands. Women aren't to submit to men in general. Wives submit to their own husbands. Women and men are to submit to the elders in the church. I could have put some cross-references for that, but I didn't. Right? We are to submit to the eldership, the leadership of the church. And I think that's part of what's going on in what Paul's saying here. One more cross-reference to help us think about this. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 14, Paul says something similar. He says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. 
the Lord has ordained order in the family and in the church. And in doing that, he has ordained that the office of elder is restricted to men. Just as he has ordained that men should be the head of their homes. So the elders' functions are ruling and teaching. The two things that he mentions here in 2 Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. And I see that as the description of the, of the, the duties of the office of the elder. Women are not to be preaching in the authoritative pulpit ministry of the church. They are not to be functioning as ruling elders. And I think that's what's in view when Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 14 that the women are to keep silent. These women who are allowed to give a word of prophecy, if they have one, are not supposed to be in the position of evaluating the prophecy, weighing, sifting, that's what the the word means here, the prophecy. They can give the prophecy, they can speak in that way, but they cannot evaluate it, question it, or explain it. And this would be supported by what he says in verse 35. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it's shameful for women to speak in the church. These women apparently were interrogating the prophets and usurping the authority of the elders and the authority of their own husbands who might be some of these prophets in the congregation. Now understand... Even some evangelical commentators attempt to just explain these verses away. They say, no, Paul is addressing uh, cultural norms in the Greco-Roman world. Women aren't allowed to speak. They're never allowed to speak to other people's husbands. And so all Paul's doing is telling them, don't violate the culture. The problem is, Paul doesn't appeal to Greco-Roman culture. He appeals to the law. He says, as it says in the law. And so what he's talking about here is the biblical concept of submission. God wants us to be edified in the church. Our edification requires order. And one aspect of that order is God's ordained structures of leadership in the church and in the home. And I don't say this in any way to... Uh, disappoint you, especially if you're visiting with us here and you're not familiar with our church. We don't view this as a negation of the gifts of women, but we view it as obedience to the Lord. A church in which a woman is the pastor is at its fundamental level disobeying the Word of God. And, and, And when you have a flaw in the church that is that fundamental, it doesn't matter how gifted the person is, how friendly the people are, how nice the worship music is, there's, there's, there's a fundamental flaw in the church because they're not submitted to the Word of God. The Word tells us women cannot be preachers. But I do think we need to be very careful about acting like this verse tells us that women literally cannot speak in the church or in the Sunday school class, that a woman could not pray that a woman could not read a scripture or something like that. I don't believe that's what this is talking about. This is talking about fulfilling the role, the work of the eldership in the church. 
I think there's another thing that's really fascinating in this passage. The passage assumes that there's qualified male leadership in the church. That is the crying need in the church at large. Traveling overseas, the church in East Asia, why is that true? I mean, the desperation for male believers who will lead. So much of the problems in in the church with women being pushed into positions of leadership is a failure of men to be qualified to lead. I think this is one of the greatest blessings we have in this congregation is many, many men who are qualified to lead in their homes and to lead in the church. That is an absolute requirement and a hallmark of a strong and healthy church and something that we should be rejoicing in. So understand, this this concept of order and what we do, it extends not only to what we're doing, but who is doing it. And so we submit ourselves to God's will in these things. Fourthly, Understand that your worship is a reflection of the character of your God. Verse 33 is very helpful here. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. You know, why is it that we need to be orderly in our assembly? Because God is not the, the author of chaos, of disorder, of tumult. He is the author of peace. And that, the word used for peace there is the word from which we get the English word irenic, which means sort of harmonious. There's harmony there. And, and Paul says this is true in all the churches. I think that's because this concept is rooted in the nature of God. God is three persons in one God. A, a beautiful, harmonious trinity that works together. And these three persons work together perfectly to create the world that we live in. And these three persons are ongoing, working to sustain the world and all life in it. You know, we get up every morning, the sun rises, the earth rotates on its axis, right? The sun goes around, or the, sorry, the, the earth goes around the sun, right? <laughs> Children, you would correct me on that. The moon is going around the earth. We have seasons. Like all of these things are happening because the Lord has ordained it would be so, and He makes it happening. We live in a world of radical order. I know you, most of you children haven't gotten to chemistry yet. And some of you have are thinking, chemistry, no, don't talk about chemistry. You think about something like the periodic table, which beautifully shows all the elements, even predicts elements we haven't found yet. What's fascinating is we keep finding them, and they fit right into the table where the table predicts they should be. These elements, by having different numbers of protons and electrons, these subatomic particles, they, they bind together in certain ways and have certain properties and we can organize all of it. There's beautiful symmetry and structure in our world. That's all because of God. That's because that's who God is. And God's order and creative ability doesn't just extend to the physical world, right? It involves the spiritual world. That God in the Trinity works in perfect harmony. God the Father electing a people from all eternity. God the Son coming into the world to die for them. God the Spirit coming and working faith in our lives and making us His own. And that, that, that sustaining love of the triune God keeps us walking with Him. 
And God's at work in ordering your lives through his providence to make sure everything that happens in your life, it's not just random things that are happening, but God is guiding and directing your life. God never changes. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is who your God is. And what you need to understand is the way you worship is a reflection of who your God is. That, that's what Paul's saying to us here. I put a, a quote from commentator Gordon Fee again. The theological point is crucial. The character of one's deity is reflected in the character of one's worship. Do you ever think about it that way? The way I worship is saying something about who I think God is. There's a, a wonderful story in our Bibles in 1 Kings chapter 18 about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And you remember their children, right? There, there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a bull uh, that the prophets of Baal get. There's a bull that Elijah gets. They're going to put it on the wood, and they're asking God to answer by fire and to, uh, to, to send fire from heaven. That's the real God. And you remember how the prophets of Baal worship their God? Right? They yell to their God. They cry out to their God. They start to cut their bodies so that they're bleeding. They're dancing around, trying to get their God's attention. And Elijah sits over there watching all this, and he's saying to them, yell louder, yell louder. He's probably on a trip, or he's in the restroom, and he can't hear you. Literally, what he's saying to you, he's just mocking them. Because the God you worship, his character is reflected in the way you worship. What does it say... If a church worships in such a way that the children in the church need to wear ear protection in order to come to worship. I've actually been in church. I've seen it done. I've seen it done. The electric guitar, the drum set is so loud it damages the hearing of the children. Every, whenever I've been in those situations, I've thought of Elijah. Yell louder. He can't hear you. What does our worship say about who we think God is? And when I first came to town here in the 1990s, there was this thing called the Toronto Blessing going on. Right? And, and, and that, in those charismatic churches, people were rolling around on the floor, laughing hysterically in the church. And, and they were saying that was of God. Right? That is not the God that we see in the Bible, the God of order. Now, we need to bring this perhaps closer to our own situation. Because we're not likely to be the ones rolling around on the floor or turning up the amplifier. What does it say about our God if we come into the service and we're half asleep or we're on our phone or we're distracted and our minds are miles away? That says something profound about who we think God is is God wants order in his worship you know where the greatest order you can find is in a cemetery but everyone's there is dead that's not what God's going for in worship he wants living joyful people the order is not a replacement for the life and, and that's what our final point is order is not the enemy of life it is the enabler of life in the church. 
So Paul rebukes them here with a little bit of sarcasm. Did the word of God come originally from you or was it only you that it reached? Right? Are you the people that, that know the truth among all others? You can tolerate this chaos in your worship. He goes on to say, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, and they did think very highly of themselves, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. If you're really spiritual, you'll see what I'm saying is from God, he says. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. It's sort of a way he's saying there, if you reject what I'm saying, God is going to reject you. And then he gets to this wonderful phrase in verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. The Presbyterian mantra. (laughs) Let's have committees and let's have it all done decently and in order. I wonder, should we put that up on the... Decently and in order. But you know what's so fascinating is verse 39. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. The same author who's saying be decent and in order is is saying be filled with the Holy Spirit and respond to the Spirit's leading. These two things are not against each other. We need to have both. The true life of the Spirit is expressed through order. And the way we get the proper dynamic in worship is we have our focus in the right place. And here commentators Camp and Rosner help us. They say, it's God's glory which is to be our preoccupation in worship. And that can be honored only when we maintain an atmosphere that does not distract people from His glory. That was a problem. Lack of order, that's distracting. Lack of life and energy, that's also distracting in a different way. Focus on myself is distracting. Focus on God is what brings these things together. We have order and we have life together. That's how it must work. And the way it works is because Jesus Christ came into the world living His perfectly ordered life deliberately. Everything He did was intentional. Remember how many times Jesus said, it's not my time. He knew why He had come. He knew what He was there for. He knew when the right time was. He knew when it wasn't. And He did everything in order. And it led to His death. But His death led to His resurrection. And His resurrection means life for all those who trust in Him. And when we come to life in Christ, what's fascinating is He begins to put your life into order. I think about my life before I met Christ. Chaos would be a good way to describe it. Now maybe not outwardly, people, you know, you're kind of functioning. But internally, you know it's chaos. You're living for yourself. That can never produce good outcomes. And when Christ comes into your life, He not only makes you alive, He gives a new structure and a new order to your life. And one of the places that's manifested is in worship. Why are you here at all? Because now your schedule's different because of Christ. You've blocked off a day to worship and to serve Him. And you've made this a priority. He's the one that's enabling that. He's the one that gives you the life. He's the one that puts the structure into your life so that you can express it. He's the one that can enable us to submit to His authority structures. 
He's the one that can enable us to reflect his character in our worship. We need to understand proper worship requires structure. Structure is not the enemy of life. The Lord gives life. He wants us to be alive in our worship. He wants us to worship him in an orderly way so that life can be expressed. And he wants to be glorified as we worship him. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we seek to put this into practice. Father, thank you for helping us as we looked at this passage. We confess it's, it's tricky and there's certainly some things going on here that we're not fully uh, sure of what, what they were. But Lord, we see that the principles here are very clear. That you're, you, you want people to come to worship enthusiastically, prepared to participate. And yet you want us to do that in a way which reflects the greatest honor to you. You are a God of exquisite order as you are also a God of life. And Lord, our prayer is that you would help our worship reflect that reality more and more. That we would each come filled with the Spirit, joyfully anticipating meeting with you. That you would enable us to express our joy as we worship together, as we sing together, as we pray together, as we meditate on your word together. We pray that you would use this to help build all of us up in the knowledge of the Lord. Lord, forgive us for those times in which we fail. We thank you for our Lord Jesus, who lived his perfectly ordered life so that he could bring life to us and bring structure to our lives. We pray that that would be reflected as we worship you week by week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now we'll sing back to the Lord from Psalm 146, Selection B. The psalm where we celebrate the Lord's great work. Praise the Lord. Let all within me offer to the Lord his praise. It talks about the Lord who gives justice, who upholds his people. How the Lord loves all the righteous, for he protects the stranger's stay. He helps the fatherless and widow. He subverts the wicked way. Yes, the Lord will reign forever, Zion's God forevermore, throughout every generation. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's stand and sing our praise to God.